0: time and this is my podcast where I deep dive into matters surrounding HR tech and the future of work. I was a former HR serial entrepreneur and write extensively about the future of work on my blog. You may know me better through the Singapore HR tech market map that I created in 2017. In this podcast, I speak with the people who are enabling the future of work. From mindfulness coach to employee engagement platform, they are all helping companies to better navigate rising work and business demands. I'm hoping that sharing in this podcast will help you better prepare yourself and your business for what the future of work may bring. Hi Sonali, thank you for coming on to the podcast.
1: Hi Adrian, thank you for having me.
0: I'd like to begin by helping the audience to understand more about your background and the chain Mm -hmm. of events that led you to where you are today as the VP in product and People science at Engage Rocket.
1: Absolutely, thanks for asking and I'm happy to share. It's a long and and, and winding road that actually brings me here. I haven't had quite a linear path in my career. I actually stumbled onto people analytics about uh, four years ago, actually. Prior to that, throughout my career, I've really been a management consultant, started my career with McKinsey & Company, and then with Deloitte Consulting in the U.S., where I was primarily working in healthcare, uh, finance, and supply chain optimization studies. And after that, I, I decided to start my own consulting firm in India. There were quite a few organizations that needed consulting in the HR function. Uh, that needed specifically analytics consulting in the HR function. I, I ran that my, my consulting firm for a while and, and a few years, and I realized this was actually we were, we were onto something. There was there was something big happening in the space of HR. This whole digitization happening in the space of HR that that needed some attention. And so I upskilled, did, did a few courses, got my masters in data science. Um, and and ran the firm for a few years before uber hired me as the head of uh, people analytics in apac and that's truly when the formalization of my exposure to hr analytics took place and uh, i just realized this was a field that was so close to my heart heart it sat right at the intersection of human psychology human behavior behavioral economics technology because that's the only way you can truly scale as well as math and analytics and it was just the perfect way to combine my love for people and, and my love for data. Uh, so haven't looked back, committed myself to this function and, and and recently, six months ago, joined Engage Rocket in APAC, leading their product and people science function. So still on course and, and still very close to the career that, that I hope to stay committed to for as long as I can.
0: And with all this uh, past six years of experience in analytics, what what are some of the key findings that you have been observing across the different HR departments you've spoken with and what are some of the key surprises?
1: No, that's a great question. So one of the things that I realised was there's, I, I'll talk about my all of my observations in the pre-COVID and the post-COVID. I feel like that's a, it's a completely different space. So, of course, in the last six years of me working with HR functions, I realized just how much of a gap there was between HR, the way they work, and the business. And this is in everything, right? This was in the way that numbers were reported, the way quarterly meetings were held, the way that there was a sense of accountability, how we knew business was on track versus how we could tell hr was on track there was just a, a huge divide and it was almost painful watching hr and business in the same room uh, together because they just weren't speaking the same language and having been exposed to that early on and and especially working with the companies that kind of adopted analytics in a more data-driven approach, I realized just how much analytics can bridge HR and business and really get them to start speaking the same language, get excited about the same metrics, get excited about the same goal. So that's been super fun and exciting for me to watch and just have these two functions come together. Now, post-COVID, more than ever, HR and business are looking in the same direction. I think everyone understands that Productivity, well-being, engagement, they all drive uh, innovation. They all drive business outcomes. So finally, I feel like these two critical functions have come together. And I I think a a huge part of that is owed to just the ability for analytics to get them to start seeing the same things in the same way.
0: Interesting for you to mention where HR as well as business can be, it's quite painful to see them in the same room because they're not speaking the same language and often mm-hmm. seeing that in many instances, even until today. And uh-huh. specific to what I mentioned earlier on on analytics, something else that I'm picking up from a lot of HR people, at least the one that I had a chance to speak with, it's they are still quite 50-50 or sitting on the fence about analytics. I think most of them know that it is important, but for those that actually try to put a step in, they will often come back with a form of resistance or some form of resistance, like not enough data or the data isn't clean. But if you look at other departments, you don't see the finance department telling you, we don't have enough numbers. You don't Mm -hmm. see the salespeople telling you, we don't even have enough sales figures. We can't make a decision. Why is that the case in HR department? Or is it just me seeing this kind of things happening?
1: No, that's an astute observation. It does happen. Of course, HR and business, their partnership is its own sort of subject. And we did touch upon that. But just... Individually looking at the HR function and their ability to adopt technology. I think that has been a little bit of a bone of contention and it's, it, it was, and then maybe some cases still is the reason for the divide between HR and business and, and, and the approach to solving people slash business problems. And I, I think it's really it owes its reasoning to, to three things. First, let me start with the mindset right? And the mindset is really a product of the, the skills, the, the people, the culture within a function. Now, the mindset of HR has not been a product mindset or technology mindset, a data-driven mindset for the longest time. It has been one of of empathy, of one of individualization, of personalization, of listening, which for a long time was considered at odds with technology and and having cookie cutter responses or scaling policies and processes. So I think HR resists analytics because some people actually believe it runs counter to empathic listening. The second challenge I think is capability. I mean, being totally honest, there are far fewer data savvy professionals and data literate members of the HR community as compared to other functions, or at least have been in the recent past, just because that skill is not hired for and even less trained for you know HR professionals aren't exposed to to technical uh, training and and digital exposure as compared to their say counterparts in sales or IT or operations and the third reason i would say is vendor maturity right i think hr tech is also maturing And it's currently less intuitive and easy to use, I would think, than some other tech solutions for mature functions. For all of these three reasons, I think there's just been a divide in the recent past, but I I can say with certainty that is changing. In terms of all three, the mindset and the capability, as well as the technology solutions now, I think they're all gearing towards the inevitable future of digitization and analytics.
0: And for companies that would be keen to really consider taking the first baby steps into Mm -hmm. this aspect, and and for them, they may not know exactly how to begin, with, what to look into. What are some of the starter advice you would want to give to them?
1: Thanks for asking that question. So I would actually relate it back to the three things that I talked about that are challenges, which is mindset, capability and and maturity. For capability, I would say the, the number one is really to to both recruit for as well as train for data literacy. I do think HR functions need to commit themselves to a certain minimum you know, competency level in data analytics as well as a product mindset and technology mindset, just so f- to, to be able to equip them to be able to solve the, the company and the business problems in the way that that eventually uh, we, we will need to, especially now in the digital era brought about by COVID. So the first is just, Uh, recruit for and train for data literacy. The second would be processes, right? So mindsets can be changed with processes and rituals that are very deliberate and conscious. So if there is a and this is where I think leadership comes in, right? If the CHRO makes a decision to to change and commit to a a mindset shift within the HR function, then um, then and then this function will be unstoppable. But what that means is that From the top, I think there is a requirement to to commit to looking at HR metrics, to ask people to share insights supported by data whenever there is a presentation, to actually include within the competency framework exposure and and competency in analytics. So those are the processes uh, and the policy changes that will need to be brought about from the top. And the third would be vendor maturity. Now here, uh, I would say there are quite a few HR tech vendors that, that are making that leap towards making technology more intuitive. But what a function can do is actually invest in, in, in good HR tech solutions that, that align with where they are on the curve, on the majority curve. And once a vendor understands the context of your organization, I think, and once there is a match, we're likely to see adoption take off. So yeah, those would be my, my three recommendations.
0: In Singapore context many businesses are actually pretty small Then, at least the last I read 99% of the companies here are defined as SME. Now Mm -hmm. to what you mentioned earlier on about analytics it of course occurred to me that something like this will only be useful when there's a lot of big data which of course comes from a larger headcount. Within Singapore context or at least looking at the landscape we're in right now is there a magic figure where analytics should kick in
1: so I have two answers to that usually, and I can't decide which one I, I feel more more committed to. So, I know there is value in having an analytics mindset and a technology driven mindset. I've seen organizations as small as fifty also adopt it. Right, it, it just brings about fairness and and belongingness, and you can tie the work that you're doing at two two business outcomes. So I I would say you're never too small to adopt the analytics mindset, just because I know the correlations uh, between employee and people outcomes to customer outcomes and business outcomes. Having a pulse of your workforce is the shortest way to improve customer loyalty and really to keep a tab on those business outcomes. So I would say an organization can never be too small to embark on that journey. But when it comes to having a dedicated people analytics sort of function, or resource. I do think the number around 200 to 300 is, is really when one needs to start thinking about having a dedicated function. Before that, I think this can be outsourced, trained. There, there are various ways to solve for the data literacy gap through outsourcing, but I think an in-house function is probably most relevant at about a 200 to 300 mark of employees.
0: And of course, analytics in uh, people analytics case is really about trying to manage your resources, which is your people, much Mm -hmm. better to optimise them for better outputs or even better productivity. Mm -hmm. Uh, With with that note, do you have any uh, stories or any case studies that you can share with us about how a company may have done certain decision making without the benefit of analytics and how they managed to do it better when analytics were put in place?
1: Mm, Absolutely. There is actually quite a few uh, stories because I was consulting organizations for the longest time and uh, in people analytics, and it was always, there's two, actually two stories that come to mind. One is pre COVID and the other is post COVID. Pre COVID, one of the clients that I was working with, they were very proud of their culture. This was a very large media house in in the APAC region with publications in, in, in various types of media and they they were very proud of their culture. And, and I remember meeting the CEO and who just wanted, they just wanted an annual engagement report for the shareholders. And he, he just assumed that it's going to be great. And there's really nothing for them to learn just because they had done a, a previous survey, a very generic survey of their employees in the recent past. And there was, they hadn't learned much in and the results were as expected.
0: Okay. So the leader just wanted a paper exercise.
1: Exactly, exactly. And that's when I came in and, and we did. We ran this study, but of course at this time we were a lot more detailed, right? Where there were a lot of lot more employee attributes we pulled in. We went granular down to every function. We we and then when the report came out, we looked at it through various results and we we looked for correlations and we looked for those real insights that a cursory sort of descriptive report doesn't really give you um and the organization learned some startling things about the the state of diversity and inclusion in their organization they learned that the attrition amongst women was incredibly high almost three times they had attributed it to external factors but then when this report came out they realized it was actually internal it was all cultural we did some open-ended sort of text analysis with uh, using topic modeling and, and just the themes that were coming out spoke of discrimination and needing, feeling like there's a meeting culture, needing to work overtime, lack of work-life uh, flexibility, having an input-driven, activity-driven culture, not outcome-driven. All of these things, right, that, that absolutely there was no way to get access to these rich insights through, let's say, just a, 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 a simple five-question survey with a score. You need to get to the truth. You often need to look three levels deeper. And I think for this organization, this really helped open their eyes and they called for a department led meeting then created some policy level changes that just wouldn't have been possible if they hadn't chosen to look deeper. So I actually commend that the leader for being willing and open, even if he was surprised by the results and actually committing to a way forward.
0: That's a lot of things that you picked up for a leader who thought that everything is nice and dandy. Yes. And and how are they uh, doing right now? Are they still implementing or if, do you have any idea if they are they're still on very much on track based on what you've yes. shared with them?
1: Yeah, they had a one-year plan, a program, which I think they increased to then three years. And they, they have been able to improve their, their representation. They've been improve, able to improve their, their belongingness. And, and they're actually making, the, the best part is to me, that it the process became integrated within the business. So they actually started having department level goals, evaluating department heads and managers on engagement, on employee sentiment and the sense of belongingness and fairness within their teams. And so not just looking at as a as one number to report, to share shareholders, but really making it integrating it within the fabric of the organization, making it part of every operating meeting. So they've been able to make strides. Their attrition has reduced. It's it's a long term project. That anyone who thinks they can turn around culture in three months is is really kidding themselves. But it's been really heartening for me to see the improvement.
0: I think it's really giving kudos to the CEO as well because mm-hmm. if he or she has been a bit more insistent that everything is fine, just got paper, I don't need the granular yes. details, right. we wouldn't be able to share this story today. And that's definitely something that I'm still seeing quite a lot in many different senior management, especially in some of the groups that I'm part of, mm-hmm. where many senior HR leaders are still trying to grapple with the situation where senior leaders insist on People coming back to office despite what the government says or measuring them based on inputs instead of outputs despite what is going on out there. What are the things that management are actually doing wrong right now and what should they do instead? These are questions which I think... I, I am seeing quite a fair bit of it. Are there any analytics or any data that shows you, for example, things like trusting your employees we, is really the key to productivity, not measuring them on outputs, measuring the time that they clock in. I even mm-hmm. heard stories of companies that insist on their people being on a Zoom call from 9 to 6. Their excuse is, oh, this is going to drive connectedness, but in a way, it's really just a monitor and make sure that they're in front of a computer. Mm-hmm. Do you have any... Opinions or anything you like to share with managers out there who are still living in the Stone Age?
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I'm glad you asked that question because one of the topics that I am doing considerable research in is in performance management, right? And and how management views performance, and and typically performance management practices, which actually very tightly linked to how we think of accountability, how managers and leaders think of implementing accountability within their teams. And this is one of those systems that has been broken for a very long time no one has a better solution and we're all just trudging along accepting that the, the way of the way that we currently hold others accountable the way that we measure performance is in fact valid when it's it's easy it's the easy way out it is not more effective it just happens to be an easier process to implement. And there are so many things, COVID-19, as you rightly said, has just brought this to light that there are so many things that are wrong with this process, and that can be improved. I'm just going to share some statistics here, because this is all top of mind. And since I've been doing some research, there's many research papers written on this subject. And all of them consistently point towards certain figures, which are frankly appalling. For example, 91% of employees say that effectively holding others accountable is one of their company's top leadership development needs. Um, within many organizations that have worked, high performers consistently felt that their performance was not uh, valued, while low performers felt that the organization did not do a good job of, of managing performance or, or, or stepping in uh, and helping with growth and development. Everyone seems to be unhappy. And to me, I think what we're doing wrong is we have a culture of evaluation of measurement of, of, like you said, evaluating by input. And in COVID-19, that's just not working anymore. Just because everyone's contexts are so different, everyone's input is so different. It's not a cookie cutter schedule nine to five anymore. And so really the only option is to measure people by their outcome and, and what they produce and how, what is the value that they add to the organization. And the problem is that culture while uh, company CEOs are, are good with that and, and, and they want to promote that, managers and leaders aren't really trained in that, in that, that way of thinking. So this is absolutely, I would say, one of the, the biggest priorities in an organization that HR and, and managers and leaders should commit themselves to, which is capability building in the space of performance management, coaching, creating and and nurturing their employees building psychological safety and building an environment of trust all of which will allow people to bring out their best right and i would just end with with this which is the role of managers and leaders should be to bring out the best within their teams and creating the conditions that are required to do so versus sitting back and evaluating the output or the input i would say it, it really is about about helping them do their best so that's going to need again a huge mindset shift and but i do think hr is up for the challenge
0: it sounds a lot like parenting
1: (laughs) actually that's not a bad analogy i have i've heard that quite often i think i do a manager does need to be a good parent at times yeah
0: and speaking of parenting we are of course in a current era where there are so many different demographics within the same organizations from boomers to Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z. Uh, personally, going back to the parenting analogy, I just have a kid who is, I think he's in his adolescence because he started to be more on his own, shut the door. And I think, if I don't remember wrongly, Barack Obama once said, when a kid turn 13, they will go to their room, shut the door, and they'll come out of the room when they turn 21. <laughs> I, I think that's something that a lot of parents would probably concur. But back to how this group of different demographics are actually within the office environment is this something that hr or people managers or senior managers would have to take into consideration Uh, are they different are they responding to different needs different engagement different management style because when i look at a lot of management training honestly catering to the different requirements or the different needs if there is any from this diverse group of people doesn't really pop up very often. I do understand though that you you did some work on this in Uber. Could you share with us some of your lessons, some of the things you picked up and what can we learn from all that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking, Adrian. That's an important point and we don't talk about it enough. Agreed, the generational diversity, so to speak, within an organisation. It's just not addressed. We like to think of our employee workforce as homogenous when they're not they are diverse. And this is just one of the ways in which there is diversity in the team. In answering that question, I actually just want to touch upon diversity a little bit, and then I'll uh, jump a little bit deeper into generational diversity. Uh, I think diversity is misunderstood as being just about gender. Most organizations believe that increasing the representation of, let's say, women, being a little controversial here, but just increasing, let's say, the representation of women in the organization is hitting a diversity goal. And diversity is really not about that. It's, it's about all of the employee attributes, the entire demographic mix, anything that makes us different. And I think gender is just one of the ways that is understood to bring about a difference. The reason why people have a narrow view of diversity is because they don't know there are other attributes that also lead to differences in the way you experience your workforce. And to me, this is really a problem of knowledge and awareness. Right. Most organizations aren't aware that Gen X, Gen B, Gen Z and boomers are actually very different in the way that they interact with the organization and their needs are very different. So to me, I, I was actually, yes, first exposed to this with an Uber, which has a very young workforce. The average age is, is low. And to me, it's really not about within Uber what we saw, but what we realized was that organizations uh, and and sub-organizations or functions within the organization just interacted very differently. Their needs were very different. And when we, of course, analytically speaking, when we threw age into the mix, we realized that mathematically we could see those results playing out. We could clearly see the role that age plays in, in in the way the employees produce work, in the way the employees express their needs. Now, this is a little tricky because While, of course, we touched the surface where I was introduced to the concept, I knew enough looking at the data to know that there's something going on with age that definitely has a significant impact on our people outcomes and the way our employees experience the workforce, the, the sort of the work, the experience, their environment. But age is very controversial. Many countries have legal constraints in how you're allowed to use age data. And so it wasn't something that I could go to the bottom of uh, as much as I needed to, especially countries like the U S have, have many laws against ageism. And then even being able to analyze that it, there's limited opportunity for that, but it's actually something that while it was seeded for me in my previous organization, I've been able to really further and take a deep dive into when, in my work at Engage Rocket. So very recently we found that there was a significant difference in Millennials versus Boomers, in four main areas, their adaptability to remote work, feelings of burnout, and resilience in the organization. And just to just going to give you an example, right, Millennials are far more likely to be burnt out than Boomers. Millennials have far less faith in that their organization is going to survive this pandemic or in in the future of their organization compared to boomers. Now, this might seem as if it's just employee sentiment playing out, right? But this theme consistently runs across all employee experience drivers. We found significant differences in, in, in the way that millennials and boomers experience the workforce. And uh, one of the recommendations that I made in the previous report that we recently published was that HR functions absolutely need to have different approaches to to millennials, to, to different age groups. I'm just calling out millennials and boomers because the differences were most prominent. But really, and there's three three areas that, that the differences play out most, right? One is communication. Millennials have a very different need for communication than boomers. Organizations need to be able to communicate more frequently more clearly with greater reassurance about the future of work if they want to communicate to millennials. Second was in the adaptation to digital, the new digital world. Millennials have much more of an exposure, willingness, ability to tap onto digital skills. They also have a a greater need to invest in their own digital skills um, and an interest in digitization. So organizations would need to be able to respond to that and be able to provide let's say the younger generation with the tools that they need to do their work uh, or they feel that they need to do their work. Personalization is is really inevitable, right? We see it in the customer experiences, but even in employee experiences, uh, organizations need to find a way to be able to personalize the, their response and their policies to organizations based on the on generations that they're working with and based on the mix, the generational mix that every company has. And we'll see a far greater boost to productivity, to engagement, and to innovation when we are able to personalize these experiences, which obviously can't be done without data and technology. So it's really making a case for this investment we're talking about. To answer your question on the differences um, and, and the, the differences in employee sentiment across different age groups, I just wanted to call out one one data point that I was that I uncovered uh, when we at Engage Rocket did a study on the state of employee experience in Singapore. And we analyzed about 80 plus companies. So I know that the statistic is completely reliable and and significant. We actually found that employees in the age group of 20 to 29 report being burnt out. So 20% of them just say that we're absolutely unable to avoid burnout. While when we looked at the above 68, only 5% of them felt that they couldn't manage and and couldn't avoid burnout. Now that's a 4X, almost a 4X difference. And this was just one of the examples. We, we consistently saw this in almost all critical, significant drivers of employee experience, resilience being another one. So there is a huge and a stated and an established difference in, in sentiment across these two age groups. And I just wanted to call out that this difference exists. And so all that needs to be done is for each of functions to acknowledge it and, and start to create policies that are customized to these age groups.
0: I think that's really well said, the personalization part. It's just like how many companies would do marketing. Hotel, for example, to cater to the, the older audience, the boomers, maybe you want to market more about the exclusive spa that is on the top floor that you could just take one lift and, and gain access to. Whereas for the younger generation, the millennials, you may want to market about the, the night markets, which is just around the corner. So it's the same thing, but you're just marketing it very differently because the needs, the requirements, the wants of all these different groups would be very different. And I guess that's something that data could definitely tell us about. And we also talk about this diversity aspect here. I wrote an article on uh, diversity, equality, inclusion recently, and I have to market like crazy because (laughs) there's just so little people picking that up. You mentioned, of course, the need for diversity and, and all that kind of stuff. Why, in your opinion, do you think Asia companies or maybe Singapore companies, the ones that are more familiar with, are, are quite reluctant and to really move into this space? Why do you think that's the case and what are, are they missing out on?
1: Absolutely. Um, that's a good call out and it's, a, it's a, an astute observation. I agree I've had the same experience. Just to give you an example, I was reading a report where about what are the top two people outcomes that that CHROs in in the West, specifically in the US, are most concerned about, and diversity and inclusion was one of them. The other being attrition, and uh, the, these were the top two. But we're not seeing the same sort of prioritization of DNI in APAC. And for me, I think Adrian, like I mentioned, the first is just a lack of understanding of what is diversity, and then and the second is the lack of understanding of what to do about it so the first is like i said diversity is misunderstood as being uh, having a narrow definition of let's say about gender representation to me which is it's really just a sliver of what diversity and inclusion is about so that's one right it we need to expand knowledge about what is diversity and the, the second important related point is When you start to expand the idea of diversity, then you also start to think about inclusion. One of my colleagues, he was the head of diversity and inclusion at Uber in APAC, and he used to say that diversity and inclusion is really about having a small D and a big I. And I loved that. So diversity and inclusion, you should be focusing on the inclusion, which has a far bigger impact towards all your organization's outcomes compared to the D, the small D. So the small D refers to representation, right? having a healthy mix of people within the organization with representation from different races different ethnicities different culture different ages different educational qualifications and different gender etc but really it's um, to give you an analogy right diversity is about inviting all these different people to a party but inclusion is if they feel comfortable enough to dance and that's that's the part that most organizations are, are missing which is it's not about just having hitting the the target of a certain number for people to have in the organization, which almost feels like a a forced, unfair mandate sometimes. But it's really about inclusion, which is building that sense of belonging, building the sense of psychological safety, so people feel comfortable speaking up and being themselves and bringing their authentic selves to work. Now, when you focus on the DNI, that's when you start to unlock the benefits of DNI, which is Better customer innovation, being able to address the needs of your customers in a more holistic way, being able to be more more productive, being able to be in the long term, just a a better organization with better business outcomes and goals and hitting those milestones. But it's a difficult path to get there. First, you need to understand diversity, start to measure elements of diversity, incorporate them as, as goals within the organization. Then think of a way to measure inclusion, which is measured by the sense of belonging. So it's a difficult commitment and a difficult path, and I really think um, that the issue is about awareness, but also then about capability on addressing DNI within the organization. Once we achieve these two, then I, I really do think that APAC will benefit immensely. From, from committing to this as an outcome.
0: And, and I think these are things that it takes two hands to clap as much as we would expect uh, HR as well as the people managers to do something about it. I think even as the employees, there are things that you can do about it as well. And i like to share a story I've read in a book recently. I can't exactly remember the character, but there was always this group meeting going on, senior management. And the thing is, whenever they take a bio break, the guys will of course go to the gents. They will continue the meeting discussion in the toilet. And when they come Mm -hmm. out from the toilet where they resume the meeting, there's this missing gap of 10 minutes that other people, especially the ladies, would not get. So one of the ladies were telling them when it came to another toilet break that if you guys are going to continue the meeting in there, I'm coming in. And that really cracked everyone <laughs> up and, of course, reminded people in a very jovial manner that yeah. you have to remember there are people outside of your circle that should also be part of this discussion. And with that, I, I hope you would really give people some ideas on how to move the needle forward. Nali, thank you so much for your time today in helping us to better understand about your experience as well as how analytics could be beneficial for companies out there. For people that are keen to learn more about what you do, where can they find you?
1: I'm on LinkedIn under Sonali Sharma and I'm usually responsive. I'd be happy to speak um, to people that are interested to learn more about HR. It's a passion subject for me, especially when it comes to HR analytics. I'm I'm, I'm always looking for people to have have these conversations with. Thank you so much, Adrian. I, I loved being on your show and it's been such a great conversation.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the podcast. You can refer to the show notes for links to more information about our guests and their businesses. If you enjoyed this podcast, it would be helpful to give a review on iTunes or follow me on Spotify. If you are using Overcast, please hit the star button under the episode. That will help get this episode and podcast out to more people who may find it useful. I'll see you in the next episode of The Agent Han Show.